God's word in Ephesians 6 verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Lord, would you renew in us a spirit of joy, delight, trust, peace in you. May we face life with confidence, standing firm, knowing of the gospel of peace that you've given us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Darwin Baird was a man who liked to be prepared. His truck was full of the various tools and supplies one might need in case of a battery outage, a flat tire, or even personal protection. He had a backup generator for electricity, a wood-burning stove for heat, food rations that could last for months, and hundreds of gallons of water stored. Prepared Baird was a well-deserved and well-appreciated nickname. He was also my grandfather-in-law. One aspect of wisdom involves learning to prepare for the future. Thus, Proverbs 6 says, Go to the Anto sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief or official ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. While you can't know every single possibility, there are some common and recurring facts of life for which a wise person prepares. We prepare seasonally by wrapping our pipes or bringing in the plants or getting out the winter coats. We prepare physically by not waiting for each meal, but making a list and going to the grocery store and buying all of the things for the next few days' meals. We prepare relationally by getting gifts for our loved ones, for their anniversaries, their birthdays, their Christmas, before the last minute, that is, if you're wise. We prepare financially, knowing that we don't know all of the things that could happen, but there will be some emergencies, and eventually we must retire. We prepare Militarily, if you go to Shepherd Air Force Base, common words you'll hear are combat or military readiness. You need to be prepared. Thus, we make preparations seasonally, physically, relationally, financially, militarily. But what preparations have you made spiritually? We are in the midst of discussing the armor of God here in Ephesians 6. And the verse before us today is verse 15. And as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now when people think of the essential needs of warfare, they think of weapons, they think of food, they think of communication, transportation lines. 
And yet one of the most essential elements is shoes. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us how part of Caesar's military success occurred due to the, the provision he made for his soldiers' footwear. You may know that in the Revolutionary War, in the Civil War, hundreds if not thousands of men didn't have shoes and were hampered in battle. Or in World War I and World War II, trench foot removed tens of thousands of men from the battle line. And you don't have to be a good soldier. Just wear the wrong shoes and go for a hike, and you'll be hobbled in no time with blisters on your feet. Well, thankfully, God made us combat ready with gospel of peace shoes. These shoes prepare us so the Christian can be secure, unmovable, and able to stand firm. And so far, the order in which Paul has listed his equipment has a clear rationale to it. It began, we went into God's armory, beginning that you need to start with the belt of truth wrapped around your waist. It's foundational. You know, we're not equipping ourselves with myths, our personal opinions, or our personal truth. No, we fight with the truth of God's word. For God never lies. He always speaks the truth. In the army, we were then equipped. We were fitted with the breastplate of Christ's righteousness that we saw last week. We saw that wonderful truth that by faith alone, in Christ alone, we are made righteous in God's sight. That we're made pleasing to him. You know, God's not like a kindly grandfather who's sitting there at Christmas. He sees the bowl of candy. The grandkid goes up and he sneaks the piece and he turns around and grandpa's watching. And grandpa just winks. It's all right. No big deal. Well, God's not like that. God doesn't just say, ah, sins. You know what? I'm kind of a forgiving God. No big deal. You don't worry about that one. No, God truly sent his son, Jesus to come in the flesh, live the perfect life we should, die to take the punishment that we deserve, and rise again, securing our righteousness. Thus, we have a sure defense against Satan's dart of accusation. You know when he whispers, you acted like that, and you claim to be a Christian? Well, due to the breastplate of Christ's righteousness, we can respond. We can own the sin and say, you're right. I did do that. It was horrible, but my hope is not in my goodness for God, but in Christ's righteousness, his goodness for me. As we sang last week, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my guilty soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. And that then leads to today. Because our righteousness in Christ then leads to peace. The prophet Isaiah said it like this. Isaiah 32, 17. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Or Paul similarly, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, since we're righteous in God's eyes, it's saying, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now in verse 15, Paul expands to show that God's gospel of peace prepares us to stand firm with solid shoes in our spiritual battle. To see this, we're going to see three things. If you have a bulletin, you can see this on the back, or if you grabbed one of those outline sheets, you can see it. First, gospel peace 
prepares us for God. Second, gospel peace prepares us for relationships. And third, gospel peace prepares us for suffering. First, gospel peace prepares us for God. Do you have peace with God? You know, most people think they're at peace with God. And many religious leaders even will proclaim, just generally, you're at peace with God. However, flip back four chapters. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Thus, those today who say to everyone, you're at peace with God, like the Old Testament false prophets who declared to Israel, you're at peace with God, and yet Jeremiah replied, they say peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now you can think you're at peace with someone. You're at peace with a situation when in fact you're not. Five years ago, 2018, for three Fridays in a row, a family member went to see their cardiologist and left with an emergency surgery scheduled for the next Monday. One, they didn't even let leave the hospital. Every single one of those men thought, I'm just going in for a routine checkup. But they didn't need something routine. They needed an emergency heart surgery. They thought everything was fine. I'm at peace. Everything's good. And yet, they were not. Everything was not fine. We can have a false sense of peace. It can be our health. It can be with others. We think everything's fine, and then they come and say all these things. Oh, I didn't know about that. And we can have a false sense of peace with God. God declares to us from Genesis 3 on that our sin makes a barrier, a block in our relationship with Him. Thus Isaiah 59 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And Romans 8, 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh, and that's everyone before they faith, have faith in Christ, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. Now you might be thinking, as many do, well, that doesn't really make sense. Everyone's hostile to God. I mean, yeah, I mean, some people love God, and some people hate God, but everyone hates God. We think of those people or at war God who, you know, they get red in the face, they get angry, and they can barely spell, I hate God. Yeah, those people are at war with God, but you know, the common person. And yet, the problem is, we hide our hostility with God. We have subtler forms than red-faced and yelling. Let me give two ways. First, our hostility to God is often hidden by thinking of God different than He really is. What I mean with that is we're not upset with God because the God we're thinking of is the God we've made in our own image. You know, most people in America believe in a God that created the world. You know, most Americans still are theists, but they don't really think he's all that involved day to day. He wants us to be kind and loving, and he wants to make us feel better and know his love. He wants to encourage us. He wants us to follow our hearts and desires. He never judges anyone. 
minus Hitler, Stalin, and rapists, and basically everyone's going to go to heaven. And people are fine with that God. I don't have any, wait, I'm not angry with him. But that's not who God is. When you declare to them the truth that God says our sin creates a separation, that if it's not fixed, we'll have eternal punishment. If you make known to them that God is perfectly just and holy, and that the only way for that to be fixed is for his son to die as a substitute in our place. When you say that Jesus declared he's the only way, he's the way, the truth, and life, they say, I don't like that God. Well, that's who God is. And so we hide our hostility to God by thinking of God who isn't really real. By thinking of God as the one we've conceived in our image. Second, our hostility to God is often hidden by our good deeds. I mean, we often think of hatred of God like the prodigal son in Luke 15. You know that son. He basically went to his dad and said, I wish you were dead. Could you give me your money now from the inheritance? Because I don't really want you. I just want your stuff. And they, well, yeah, that's hating God. You know, would you die, old man? I want your money. And yet, there's another son in the story. There's an elder son. And do you remember what he did when the younger son returned, when he came home? Well, he didn't go into the party. He sat outside angry and his dad had to come out to him. And when his dad said, hey, come on in, he's back. This elder son, he responded in anger at his dad. And he said, look here, I've slaved for you for years. You know, this was not a son who was in love with his father. He wasn't serving his dad because I love you and I just, oh, you just, I delight in you. He said it in his words, I've been slaving for you. I don't love you. And yet, if you looked at the outside, if you looked at the veneer of his life, oh, he loves his dad. He's still at home. He's a, well, thankfully, he's not like that younger son, the prodigal. He hates his dad. Well, no, both of them hated their dad. The older one just hit it with this covering of good deeds in his life. And many people in the church and outside of the church are the same. They hide their enmity with God by their veneer of goodness. But it often becomes clear once they're called to deeper, more sacrificial forms of love that God does call us to. Love my enemies? Pray for that president? I'm not doing that. Be generous? Give to the poor? Uh -uh, I earn this. This is my money. Dokes? Don't seek vengeance? Rather forgive? Yeah, right. I'm not doing that. Thus, we hide our hostility to God by our veneer of goodness. We don't have a relationship with God that says, I trust you. Yeah, all those things, they're hard, but you know what? You love me, you care for me, and I love you, so I'm going to do what you say. You know, in our sinful state, we don't trust God. We don't really think he has our best interests at heart. And we plan to live our life as we darn well please. And that's what the Bible is calling enmity, hatred, us being enemies of God. And thus, this hostility to God that flows out of our sinful nature, sinful rebellion must be taken care of. It, we just read Ephesians 2. We're dead in our sins. We have no ability to fix our problem with God. But praise God, He sent His only Son, Jesus, to reconcile us, to restore the peace between us and Him. This is 
Why, what do the angels declare to the shepherds in Bethlehem? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace with those with whom he is pleased. Jesus was born to bring peace. And he did this on the cross. That's why Colossians 1, 19-20 says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Therefore God's just punishment for sin was meted out on Christ, so that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And as Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, rather than enemies, God refers to us as his little flock, as his friends, as his children, terms revealing love, goodness, and care for us. And if you truly know peace with God through faith in Christ, then you can be ready for the spiritual battle. For you have put on as shoes for your feet the gospel of peace. You know, that is what gives us sure footing and the ability to stand firm. And the rest of the sermon is basically going to say, well, what does that look like? And the first what way this looks like or it comes out is that knowing God is truly our father, our friend, makes us stand firm in the temptations of Satan to sin. You know, every temptation of Satan is really the same temptation that he gave back to Eve in the garden. It's, you should not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's not your friend. He's not your good father. In fact, he's the enemy of what's good for you. He's trying to keep from you what's good. And as we saw last week, obedience to God is really the core of the battleground. That's when Satan, when he came to, set, to tempt Jesus, what did he do? He tempted him to disobey. And look again at our passage, Ephesians 6.15. Because it says, verse 15, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You know, it's not the readiness that comes from earning God's peace. In other words, the shoes that make us stand firm in our temptations, to stand firm in the spiritual conflict, is not our obedience to God that achieved peace, but rather shoes of the gospel of peace that leads to us standing firm in obedience. We have all types of shoes. We have sandals, we have boots, we have athletic shoes, we have beachwear, all types of shoes. But if you've ever played athletics, they need two things in the shoes. One, they have to be made of super strong materials so that when you cut, turn, or whatever, they don't fall apart. But then they also need to be light. I mean, you can make them strong, go make them out of concrete. They're going to be strong, but then you can't run. So they need to be strong so you're firm, but they need to be light so that you're nimble and quick. And the shoes of the gospel of peace give us both. They give us the ability to stand firm and the ability to be nimble. What I mean is, if you've ever been to a church that focuses over and over, you need to do, you need to do, you need to do all this stuff for God, 
you'll quickly learn that there's no joy. There's no peace. There's no nimbleness in their step. Obedience for God is a burden. Oh, I always got to please them. I got to do all these things. And yet, when you've come to know that it's not what I do for God, it's what he's done for me, that's when you know the gospel of peace. That's when you have readiness, as it's saying here in 6.15, for the spiritual conflict. That's why 1 John 5.8 can say, his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are light. We're wearing gospel shoes. It's not a burden to obey God. I get to obey God. He's my friend. He made peace on the cross. You know, the gospel of peace reminds us God is our friend, our father. And thus, then we hear Satan's lies. When he says, God's withholding this good thing from you, we can say, it's not true. God's commands don't ruin my life. God gave me these commands to bless my life. I may not always understand them, but I know he's my friend. And we'll never stand firm in obeying God if our shoes are not gospel shoes of peace. Thus, when we come to realize we have peace with God through Christ, it restores our peace objectively with God, and it also motivates us to obey God. You see, a relationship can never flourish when you're like that little boy or girl sitting there with the flower. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And always unsure, do they love me or not? There's no confidence by which to act. And yet when we look at the cross, we don't say, he loves me. He loves me not. We say, he loves me period we have peace with god some of you may have read the series of books called little house on the prairie it's about a family that lived in the late 1800s early 1900s in the prairie uh, and the author laura ingalls wilder tells of a time when she was with her older sister mary and her older sister mary was always the good the well-behaved child and they were a little bit older now and Laura commented, you were always good. Maybe so mad sometimes, but now you're good without even trying. Mary then confessed, I know why you're mad. It was because I was showing off. I wasn't really wanting to be good. I was showing off to myself what a good little girl I was and being vain and proud. In other words, Mary saying, it was that veneer of goodness. It was being good for God and others, for myself, but it wasn't really inside of her well they continued talking and laura felt like but somehow nevertheless mary now seemed to just be good without even trying and so she asked mary how could you be good without even thinking about it mary then said i don't know how to say what i really mean but it isn't so much thinking as as just knowing just being sure of the goodness of god being sure that God is your friend. That he's made peace with you. Let's you know that he only wants to do good. And if you're assured of the goodness of God, then you have a nimbleness in your step. You've been prepared. You have readiness for the spiritual conflict because you can now go and hear Satan's temptations to sin and go, 
I don't even really have to think about it. I know my Father is good. So all that He commands me is good. Thus, we're prepared for Satan's temptations of sin by knowing God has made peace with us through Christ. He loves us as our Father and friend. But Satan doesn't just tempt us personally. He also tempts us relationally. So that's the next section. Gospel peace prepares us for relationships. When we know objective peace with God through Christ, that motivates us to seek peace with others. You know, what keeps us from having peace with others? Well, they sin against us and we sin against them. We then bear grudges and we won't revenge and we won't forgive them. Yet, when we sin against God, He made a way for us to have peace with Him. He didn't sit back and go, okay, sure, if y'all want to fix everything, then we'll have a peace treaty. Well, we might be able to work it out. No, the Bible tells us while we were still enemies, God made a way for peace. We now have the wonderful privilege to reflect God by extending that same peace and forgiveness to others. God's making peace with us gives us the resources, the motivation to share that same peace. That's why Colossians 3.15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. In other words, the peace of Christ should function internally as a rule or as a judge in our disputes with others. You know, we have this internal debate in our heads. On the one hand, they did it again. They're such a jerk. They always do that. And yet on the other hand, but I did that again to God. And I'm not always so kind and thoughtful and thankful to Him. And we're going back and forth. And the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts says, the final judge is that God made peace with you when you were His enemy. So you can now make peace with them while you're still their enemy. Since we know the peace of Christ, we get to be peacemakers like Christ. In November 1942, Michihara Shinya's worst fear became reality. His Japanese ship was sunk and he became taken as a prisoner of war. Yet though he hated his captors and wished he died, he was shocked at their kindness and love toward him. In fact, he had no idea what this Christmas word was they kept using. But even though he was a prisoner of war, they brought him presents on that day. It took him time, but later, Michiharu later came to know not just the peace of other humans. He came to know the peace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. It's because when we have peace with God we're able then to extend the peace of God to others, even prisoners of war. Now, that doesn't mean this will be easy. You know, we're in the spiritual conflict section. That's why Romans 14 says, So then let us pursue peace. And what makes for peace? Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone. Words showing energy, effort. As a Christian... If you have a problem with someone, you really only have two God-honoring options. God-honoring option number one is to forgive them. It's a glorious thing to overlook an offense. No longer hold it as a grudge. No longer harbor thoughts against them. 
God-honoring option number two. Go talk to them about it. Seek to work it out. And yet we don't really always like God-honoring option one or two. We like option three. I don't talk to them. I talk to others about it. And I replay it over and over. And I hold a grudge. And I'm bitter. And I'm stewing about what they've done to me. And as we sit there and stew and we find delight in our twisted pleasure, Satan loves it too. You know, the gospel of peace prepares us to swallow that pill of pride and personal vengeance and instead offer peace and reconciliation. You know, why do we have a monument of Marines lifting up a flag on Iwo Jima? Because it was a fight. It was a struggle to get up there. And some of you should have mental monuments of the battles that you've won in your relationships. You know what they did. And it was extremely hurtful. And you wanted to hold it against them. You didn't want to forgive them. Internally you fought saying, I am not going to let there be peace between us. You wanted to hold a grudge. You wanted to lash out and let them feel just a taste of what they made you feel. And yet you said no. The peace of Christ was given to me. And so I, though it hurts, I am going to offer that same forgiveness to them. And when the peace of Christ does rule and reign in our relationships, it's a major spiritual victory. It is Iwo Jima-like accomplishment, for we have to fight and strive for peace. Peace with God also allows peace in one of the most difficult relationships we have in this life, and that is the one with ourselves. Perhaps you've loathed yourself. You maybe even have said, I hate myself. Maybe even you've done self-harm. You know what you've said. You know what you've thought. You've known what you've done. And you think, I, oh, I deserve to be punished. So you inflict it on yourself. Friends, your impulse that you deserve punishment is not wrong, but it is horribly, tragically misplaced. God took the punishment you deserve and he put it on his son. He fully bore the wrath you deserve. And now if you trust him, he calls you friend. If God declares you no longer need punishment, then who are you to judge differently? So cinch up the boots of the gospel of peace in Christ, and you'll be able to face the internal attacks of being or feeling unworthy. You can face those and say, you're right. I deserve punishment. I, what I did was horrible, but God has made peace with me through Christ. You can sing, and I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Then extend that same grace and peace to others and yourself. So being prepared by the gospel of peace makes us ready for God. It makes us ready for relationships. And third and lastly, it prepares us for suffering. One of the most challenging things in life is dealing with suffering. How can we have peace in the midst of disease, poverty, broken relationships, death? 
Is it going to come from a pill? Perhaps you'll find peace if you empty your mind and meditate. Well, Philippians 4 says something else. 4, 6, and 7 proclaims, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ, Je in Christ Jesus. You might be thinking, well, pfft, that's a little idealistic, a little unrealistic. Now, that's not saying that you won't grieve. The Psalms are full of laments. Jesus cried in the garden, if possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. However, after that time of prayer, he went forward with resolve. Similarly, we can go through troubling and hard situations. And as we wrestle with God in prayer, and we lace up our gospel boots and shoes of peace, we can be ready for the suffering we face. And the essential thing to realize, though, is that the peace of God comes after we have peace with God. When we know that our peace was purchased by the blood of Jesus, it shows us that God desires what is best for us. Isn't this why we often don't have peace internally? We're afraid of the future. Yet consider Romans 8, 31-32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, if you know God is your friend, then you know he'll take care of you. He sent Jesus to die for you. He's not going to drop the ball on the rest of your life. Yes, there will be deep sorrows and suffering. Jesus told us that. John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me you have peace. You may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. How could Jesus say both? You're going to have tribulation. And also, you're going to have peace. He could say both because he ends by saying, I have overcome the world. Meaning, I've lived the life you should have. I've died the death you should have. I rose again securing what you need with God, righteousness. And now you can have peace with God. It's when we know the peace with God, that leads to us knowing the peace of God. You know, earlier we read Psalm 46, and people love, I love, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. But I don't know if you were listening and heard that verse if you remembered what came before it. You know, people like to put that verse on a picture, and it's normally serene mountains, a lake that's calm, a beautiful sunset, be still and know that I'm God. And if you have that in your house and I walk in, I'm not, it's fine. But the context of the psalm is not a sunset or a lake or a nice mountain. It's of earthquakes. It's of conflicts. It's of wars. That, read it again. Oh, that's what's going on in the psalm. And in the midst of that psalm, he says, be still and know that I am God. So David didn't write that sitting on a chair off looking out on the Mediterranean, sipping his tea going, oh, be still and know that I'm God. 
David probably wrote that in a tent or in a cave, thinking, whew, that was a rough battle today, and we got another one tomorrow. But be still and know that I am God. How can he do that? Because he knew the God who is his good shepherd. Earlier I mentioned Laura Ingalls Wilder and how her sister Mary knew deep down the goodness of God. What is written right after that really drives home the amazing nature of her words, for it says in the book, Laura stood still. And so did Mary, because she dared not step without Laura's arm and guiding her. If you don't know the story, Mary had become blind a year before when she was 14. Now she is 15 years old and she can't even walk without her sister leading her. So just think about that. What would you say if you're 15 or a year from now, you're blind? Would the peace of God have anything to do with the way you thought about it? Laura then asked her, you are sure, aren't you, that God is good? Mary replied, yes, I am sure, if it now, all the time. The Lord is my shepherd, she continued, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. See, it wasn't her sight. But her blindness that Mary saw that deeply God is her good shepherd. That he's her loving father. That he's his faithful friend. So friends, we don't have to wait till life is good. You can... Sorry. We can know he's good even in the suffering. And that's what Mary saw. So friends, do you have that peace in the suffering and storms of life? You know, as you read through scripture... This is one of the places that Satan likes to attack us. You may remember in Job that Satan wanted to sow into Job's life bitterness, anger, doubt. And that's what he accused God of. He said, look, if you look at your servant Job, he's really not that great. It's just the fact that you bless his life. As soon as you take those blessings away, he's going to curse you. And it appears... Satan would have been right if he had said, Job's wife only praises you because you have blessed their life. Because once they went through their deep suffering, she said in Job 2.9, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Yet Job fought and he won the battle, not by being stoic. He didn't say, well, it doesn't matter. What happens, happens. God's in control. He didn't turn to self-pity. Oh, you're right. Life's become miserable. There's no hope. There's nothing good. Rather, we're told, Job 1, 20, 20 through 1, and Job arose and tore his robes and shaved his head. Now, that's how they mourn in their culture. And he fell on the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This Job neither became stoic, 
nor did he turn internal into self-pity. Rather, Job trusted God even in the midst of his deep sorrow. So friends, what gives your life footing when it appears to be out of control? What secures you so you can stand in dark and troubling times? You know, when we put on the armor of God, it then says, and having done all, stand firm. And we stand by the gospel of peace. Those are the shoes. That's what gives us readiness. Knowing the peace with God gives us the peace of God. The peace of God that comes not merely when we're healthy and wealthy, but peace in the midst of temptations. Peace in the midst of relational meltdown. Peace in the midst of suffering. Friends, you can have and know such peace if you know, believe, and delight in the peace that Jesus secured for us with God. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you care for us, that you would send your son to die for us. So Lord, there are deep sorrows. We do have such relational issues, sometimes even with ourselves or with you. So would you help us to see your love and your goodness and kindness in Christ so that we might then be ready for all the attacks, all the darts that will be thrown from the evil one. And may we overcome knowing your love given to us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.